0: Phase 3 data evaluating the biosimilarity of a new biosimilar referencing ranibizumab has been completed. What were the results?
1: I'm Greg Notstein, here with Scott Chris Criswanis, and this is New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Dr. Anat Lowenstein joined New Retina Radio to walk us through the results of the EXPLORE study.
0: And Dr. Ramanath Bhandari summarized his presentation on the Truckee study, a real-world evaluation of the performance of farisimab. What do the most recent updates tell us about practice patterns and patient response? Keep listening to find out. Biosimilars are all the rage in retina practice these days, and for good reason. They may grant access to a more affordable class of anti-VEGF agents, saving patients and healthcare systems money. But they'll only be useful if we can find that they are biosimilar to the molecules that they reference. The safety and efficacy of a novel ranibizumab biosimilar was recently evaluated in a Phase 3 study, and Dr. Anat Lowenstein shared data from that study at this year's AAO annual meeting. Dr. Lowenstein is professor and director in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Tel Aviv Medical Center and is the Sydney A. Fox Chair in Ophthalmology at the Sackler Faculty of Medicine, also in Tel Aviv, at University Israel. Dr. Lowenstein, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be back in the show and uh, to talk about uh, something really, really exciting that is uh, coming up in the world of retina specialists nowadays.
0: I agree. So let's talk about the Explore study, which, for the listing audience, is spelled X P L O R E. Tell us about your presentation.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the presentation actually uh, discussed uh, a biosimilar to ranibizumab. Uh, it's a termed the uh, biosimilar candidate. Uh, and basically, it uh, it is uh, a similar to a drug that we all use very very commonly, uh, which is ranibizumab. It's called Xelutec, uh, and uh, it is produced by a Swedish company, uh, and uh, it's uh, going to be distributed uh, both in uh, regional Europe and uh, in the United States. And uh, the, scu- the study actually discusses uh, the drug that is uh, in-, in the study that in which uh, the drug was compared to uh, ranibizumab. Uh, in a a, a design that is pretty similar to the design of uh, phase three studies uh, all over the world from from the times that we know such studies. Uh, The study was called the EXPLORE trial and it compared monthly ranibizumab to the ranibizumab biosimilar candidate given monthly uh, with uh, the inclusion criteria being very similar to inclusion criteria of AMD, other age-related macular degeneration trials the patients were patients with new vascular macular degeneration. What is interesting about this trial is that the primary endpoint was the change from baseline in uh, best corrected visual acuity uh, at week eight, which is, uh, might be a little uh, unusual, but it, it is because at this stage, uh, at this t- point in time, it's the easiest time to find uh, a, a difference or similarity uh, between drugs.
0: We were looking at about 580 patients in total who were enrolled. They were equally randomized um, into both treatment arms. Can you tell me what the primary efficacy endpoint was? You said it was at eight weeks, but what exactly were we looking at here?
2: Yeah, so the, the, the primary efficacy endpoint of this study was the change from baseline in best corrected visual acuity in ETDRS letters, as is the custom, at week eight.
0: And what was the threshold to determine if one drug was biosimilar to the other? Meaning, uh, what letter difference was considered within the realm of biosimilarity?
2: Yes, yeah, so according to actually the, um, I would say regulation coming from both the FDA and the European authority, uh, that uh, biosimilarity was uh, defined if uh, an equivalence margin of plus minus 3.5 letters were, was used. And this is what is used to confirm uh, usually biosimilarity or actually similarity between uh, drugs.
0: Understood. Now, let's talk about the baseline characteristics before we get to the findings. What did the two arms look like at baseline?
2: Uh, This is a very important question because when we want to compare outcomes of two outcome of two treatments, we need to make sure that the baseline characteristics are uh, pretty similar or not significantly different between the two groups. Something that could change the results. So when you look at the clinical characteristics, the demographic characteristics of the patients, they were similar between the groups: the the group that received ranibizumab and the group that received the biosimilar uh, candidate. Um, and also the demographics were pretty similar to other macular degeneration studies. The mean best corrected visual acuity score, just as an example, at baseline was around 62 letters in both groups. And this we know that baseline visual acuity is, very, is a very important biomarker. If it weren't um, um, comparable or similar between the two groups at baseline, it would have been difficult to prove biosimilarity.
0: Understood. Now let's get to those eight-week results. Tell us about the efficacy findings at week eight.
2: So at week eight, which as I said, is the time where the slope is the steepest in all the trials that we know from macular degeneration, because you know the the improvement in visual acuity is along the first three months and the peak is at about uh, eight weeks then um, this is the time where you could see separation if, the, if there was not a biosimilarity. So what was found here that at eight weeks, the least square main chain in best corrected visual acuity from baseline was 4.6 in the biosimilar group and 6.4 in the Lucentis group. And this difference of 1.8 letters was within the pre defined definition of biosimilarity. Now, the question of using the least square mean change in best corrected visual acuity is a statistical method to um ignore uh, or avoid the influence of outliers. so uh, it it actually makes uh, makes the the biosimilarity more valid
0: and then tell me about any anatomic differences that the researchers observed.
2: So when we look at anatomical differences, first of all, what we look at in all the trials is the change in central uh, subfield thickness. And uh, this was uh, similar, uh, you know, the similarity in uh, breast corrected visual acuity improvement was paralleled by similarity in decreasing central uh, subfield thickness. So that was what we are used to seeing all uh, AMD trials, but there were many other anatomical parameters that were looked at in this trial. And also in these other anatomical anatomical parameters, uh, there was no difference between the two groups, so there was a similar decrease in uh, the CNV leakage area, the total size and C- of CNV, and the number of intra-retinal cysts which were observed. A very important parameter that people are looking at nowadays is the percentage of patients that don't have intra-, sub-, or total retinal fluid, and this was also very similar uh, in all groups. In both groups, so uh, another all the parameters of uh, anatomical uh, improve um, change were actually uh, in the same direction of similarity between the two rats.
0: Your colleagues are always interested about safety data when it comes to a new agent. Can you give us a quick summary of the safety findings?
2: Yes, uh, Scott, you're absolutely right, because we do know that uh, um, when when we are talking about new molecules, be it biosimilars or a brand new molecule, uh, we are always worried about the safety you know, we do have drugs that work that are doing very well, so we, if we want to improve either the availability by a lower cost or the duration by another mechanism, we always want to make sure that we are not hampering the safety of the patients. So, I'm glad to say that the overall safety profile was po- positive and similar uh, among both groups. So, you know, everything that you looked at, uh, adverse events and se- uh, severe adverse events and adverse events that are treatment related, all were similar among both groups. And within the accepted safety profile that we know for many years that exists with the uh, Uh, ranibizumab. So also with its uh, biosimilar uh, candidate, it was uh, very, very much acceptable. Also, um, immunogenicity profile was um, compared and it was also similar between the two groups.
0: Dr. Lowenstein, congrats on a great presentation and thanks for sharing the info with us.
2: Thank you very much for your interest. I think it's a very, very exciting era that we are coming into with biosimilars being one of the most exciting things that will make the treatments more available for our patients.
0: Ferisumab was approved by the U.S. FDA in January. As we round out the year, we wanted to get an update on how it's performing in real-world patients. At this year's AAO meeting, Dr. Ram Bandari
1: presented the latest update from the Truckee study, which examined real-world safety and efficacy of ferisumab in patients with wet AMD. Dr. Bhandari practices at the Springfield Clinic Eye Institute in Springfield, Illinois. Dr. Bhandari, thank you so much for joining us here on New Retina Radio.
3: Greg, thanks so much for the opportunity to bring the real-world clinician-centric results uh, brought to you by the Truckee Collaborative. Um, Truckee is a physician-directed group with no pharma sponsorship and has a unique perspective in bringing the real-world outcomes to, to your listeners with with the use of furicimab.
0: New Retina Radio listeners are somewhat familiar with Truckee. Dr. Carl Danzig gave us the first update on Truckee this summer. As I understand it, there have been some developments. When we spoke with Dr. Danzig on New Retina Radio, Truckee had enrolled 377 total patients and administered a total of 770 injections of furicimab. Where do things stand now?
3: Yeah, so the Truckee Collaborative has continued to collect data on patients as we continue to see them in our clinics. We have a total of 491 patients. Uh, We've done a total of 1,200 injections, give or take. And we have follow-up data with more than one time point on 335 patients, up from 233 patients uh, when Dr. Danzig presented his data at ASRS.
0: That's certainly a larger population. Tell us what the baseline demographics looked like in this larger set and if they differed from the update that we heard this summer?
3: Yeah, so they're largely the same. Truckee was focused on patients who were high need and were switched initially. Um, so those patients had a mean age of 80 years old, and uh, approximately 58% of those patients uh, had previously been on Um We did see a small uptick in the percentage of patients with. Uh, wet AMD who were treatment naive. Uh, now that number is 10% versus previously it was 7%. So so what that shows us is pay, uh, clinicians are becoming much more comfortable actually starting this as a new new line treatment as opposed to, um, you know, for their high need patients only.
0: As you mentioned earlier, there are 335 patients with at least one follow-up appointment. Among those patients, you tracked. Three things. Changes in letters gained or lost, central subfield thickness changes, and changes in PED height. What did you find when you look at all of these patients who have had some follow-up?
3: So uh, we see a trend towards better visual acuity. We saw a gain of 1.1 letters at the first follow-up visit. Um, The mean central subfield thickness was reduced by 31 micrometers, and mean PED height also, had a reduction, uh, which, and that was about uh, 59 micrometers. Um, all of these numbers were statistically significant versus baseline. And it's important to remember we're used to seeing much higher changes in ETDRS vision. And what's important to remember is that this is actually only after one follow up visit. And these were also our most highest need patients.
1: What if we looked only at patients who were treatment naive at baseline?
3: So in those patients, PED height and central subfield thickness, um, those reductions remained significant uh, versus baseline. There was a 4.9 letter improvement, which was much larger than what we saw in all patients switched. But uh, because the N was much smaller, the N was 37 as opposed to 335, um, this this number did not meet significance in terms of 4.9 letters gained. Uh, although that is one full line of vision gained.
1: What if we looked only at patients who were switched from a flibercept to ferisumab?
3: So I'm glad you asked that question, Greg. These are the patients we really want to focus on. Uh, in our in our clinics, um, the patients who are in a flibercept are typically the ones that are most difficult to treat. Um, and um, oftentimes... These are the patients that are initially switched are those that don't actually meet the labeled dosing of the Flibricept, meaning they're being treated more frequently than every eight weeks that was done in the VIEW-1 and VIEW-2 studies. Um, these patients are typically suboptimal responders to veg monotherapy, and it's important to remember that, you know, basically every uh, therapeutic that's approved by the FDA at this point in time, except for ferizumab, um, has most of its function through blocking VEGFA. Um, in these patients that were switched from a flibricept, we saw a similar pattern in terms of significant improvements to anatomy, um, yet uh, non-significant improvements, but trends towards gains in vision. So the other piece to remember here is that um, typically switch patients are excluded from most studies. And so as they, as they are excluded from most studies, um, the visual gains here that we see, um, it's not surprising that they are not visually significant because uh, these patients have already been treated on an on a anti-VEGF agent for some of them, in some cases, many years. Typically, for most uh, trials, we are starting patients who are treatment naive, and, and hence we see much larger visual gains.
1: What role does ANG2 inhibition play in relation to wet AMD?
3: So this is actually a question that has come up often among clinicians who are actually treating patients. Even our one of my partners has asked the same question is, you know, what is the role of ANG2? And, and I think when we look at the role of ANG2 in terms of suppression of uh, or disease remission and macular degeneration, um, the cleanest set of data actually comes from Regenron. And Regenron had a study, they had a program um, that was originated back in, you know, well before 2016 and, and now is most recently published. And this was the Ruby trial that was published actually in just in February of this year by, by David Brown. What it showed was that patients treated with a flibercept in combination with an ang2 antibody as a coformulation um, had improved secondary outcomes. Um, in terms of central subfield thickness and percent of patients completely dry in the central subfield at 12 weeks as compared to patients treated with aflibercept alone. And the dose, what's important to note here is the dose of aflibercept was unchanged between both arms. Um, the, tree, the study was done in, in patients with diabetic macular edema, so it wasn't a direct comparison, but it did show the power of ANG2 suppression in addition to VEGFA suppression. Uh, this is the cleanest data set that shows the power of the dual mechanism and improvement in anatomic outcomes and trends towards improvement in vision. And when what's really interesting here is that with ferisimab, we're seeing the same in some of our switch patients.
1: Let's get back to Truckee here. What safety data do you have to share at this time?
3: So there were no new cases of infectious endophthalmitis from the last update this summer. There was one new case of intraocular inflammation which interestingly happened in a patient who was previously treated on brolucizumab and had inflammation. And the incidence of this case of intraocular inflammation happened after the fourth dose of furizumab. Um, It resolved on topical steroids and Widefield FA confirmed the absence of occlusive vasculitis and retinitis that, that we had previously seen with brolucizumab.
0: Truckee is an ongoing study. We're going to continue to see more data. When can we expect the next data cut from the Truckee group?
3: So Truckee will continue to collect data from the collaborative as we move forward. The next data readout will be at the next major ophthalmic conference. We'll report longer-term outcomes post-switch. We're hoping to report post-three injection visits at the next data cut.
0: Dr. Bandari, thanks so much for joining us and sharing the data from the Truckee group.
3: Yeah, it has been truly my pleasure to spend time with both of you. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. That's it for this edition of Late Breakers
1: from the AAO 2022 Annual Meeting. We have a few more updates along the way, so make sure you are subscribed in your podcast feed.
0: And if you haven't subscribed, you know how to do it. Go into your podcast platform of choice and tap subscribe. It's free, it's easy, and we will have episodes automatically delivered to you.